Hi, this is Tony Ruggiero. Thanks for listening to The Tour Coach. These are the players, coaches, experts, stories, and insights from my work on the PGA Tour at my retreats or my downtown teaching center in Mobile, Alabama. My goal is to shed light and share insights from the people who I've gotten to know and meet working on the PGA Tour and teaching through my career. And I hope this helps all of us play, coach, and teach better golf. If you like what you hear, please give us a good review and take a look at our new Dew Sweepers YouTube channel or the Dew Sweeper on Instagram, where I've taken some time to share videos of help from my teachings, travels, and journeys. Tony Ruggiero here on the Tour Coach. Just pulled into Louisville, Kentucky for the Barbasol this week and thought I'd catch up with been chatting back and forth with one of the great teachers that I see on occasion out here, well, more than an occasion, out at PGA Tour stops and Corn Ferry stop, Mr. Jeff Leishman. Jeff, how you doing, bud? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I've been wanting to catch up with you for a while, and recently, uh, you know, with all the traveling, you have time to peruse social media. I guess that's what I use to kill my time on planes, is looking at all the stuff that's out there. And you put some great stuff out there, and one of the things that really interested me is all the young, the really good young players you have coming up. That's my passion. I love helping develop and be part of young players chasing their dream. And and you've got some great stuff out there and certainly has to be one of the top things that interests you developing young players. It does. I don't, my wife and I ran a very large junior program about uh, 10 years ago now. We ran an 18 hole par three golf course in Jupiter. And that was more of the, seven, eight, uh, 12-year-olds. And then as my coaching career evolved, I would say that I tend to focus a little bit more on girls and boys that are kind of post-puberty, maybe, you know, like yeah. uh, uh-huh. 15, 15, 16, stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, I, it's a, it is a passion of mine. I enjoy connecting with the families and being part of the journey, really. That's the fun part to me is most of mine is, you know, what I would say that as the kids go from, you know, as they become to start to become more and more serious about the game, you know, post puberty and they're going into high school and they're trying to get to where they could play a college sport or, or so forth. And obviously they all have aspirations of beyond, but to me, one of the coolest thing we can do is help take a kid along that journey and, you know, sometimes we get some kids that when they start don't ever think they'd have the opportunity to play college golf. And then it's fun, even if it's a small college, to see a kid get to the point where they can achieve something that, you know, in particular, maybe at times they never thought they'd be able to. Yeah, and the uh, the, the elements of that, like connecting with – because I think that that's an integral part of the job is connecting with the coach at that school and trying to get an idea of what's a good fit. Wait, is mm-hmm. this going to be a situation where – uh, this person is going to thrive, or are they, you know, is it more of a developmental environment and uh, people's situations change? So I think that that is, like, it is, it's not, like, I never enter into a situation thinking that I'm going to be making PGA Tour players or LPGA Tour players. Right. It's more that, that it's, uh, all right, like, yeah, I think you said it well there, like, you, um, you know, you are, you're looking to pray, like, my thing is always I'm, I'm trying to create a plan for somebody, and we're going to put this plan in place, and... The goal is that you get better, and we'll just see where that leads. Exactly. No, no, I love it. And that, that's, you know, what I always strive to do with developing young players is to help create the plan and then get everybody together around them to understand what the plan is. 
you know, and to help support the young player in that plan and and understand where we're going with it. So I, I always like hearing about that. Now, you mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, before your coaching career kind of took off. Let's take us through a little bit about how your coaching career took off to the heights that it is now and some of the things that have happened and some of the things that have shaped your coaching career and the things that you think are important and believe in as you coach and teach now. Well, the biggest thing was when I was, able to move to South Florida. So I'm Canadian and I came to South Florida originally to pursue some golf myself. And I had a, I was a class A professional in Canada at a very early age, which really was not going to lead more at the time. I didn't think it was going to be that I was going to assume I had a professional job up there. I, I just was part of that program. And my wife and I ended up of all places in Jupiter, Florida, which was a, really a coincidence. And after playing a little bit and deciding that, like, you know, wasn't really my thing or wasn't going to work out, we had an opportunity to run uh, the 18-hole par-3 golf course in Jupiter called Jupiter Dunes. And we bid on that job to run it as a facility and then also was a great opportunity to expand on the junior program because um, the, the par-3 environment was great to start these kids out and mm-hmm. we ran it. We ran it in a way which was like a shotgun start, where there were groups that would start on nine or ten of the holes, and then they would move around from one location to another and have different games and things we do at each of the holes. And I quickly found out that in staffing this, because at one time we had up to twelve instructors that were working for us, that a lot of the existing golf pros were not very good at it, and I, including myself, <laughs> uh, they were just. Not yeah. not great at communicating. Uh, you could get that look with the kids where you, you can tell that you lost them. You know, their eyes glaze right. over, and you're like, and it's in in South Florida, like it is in Alabama. I mean, it's hot the summertime. Oh so yeah, you can, uh, you, know, you can you can lose them quick. Like you can just tell. Okay, these kids are not into this, and uh, so that that shaped me. I think in like communication style, it helps me today. It also helps me to train other teachers and coaches in like, all right, we, let's, let's just dial all of this technical stuff down into a format. So part of that was that I, I wrote our own teaching manual, which was a great experience for me, made lessons plans, and that helped to shape my own thinking about how to communicate and build those lessons. And it uh, led into, well, you know, you asked, I'm sure you get asked this question too, you know, how do you get into coaching better players or early oh, yeah. Sport players? And that, yeah, right. And that's a big question, you know, because you start to think back in your head like, okay, whoa, that's a, that's not a one-word answer. And it always starts with one client. So for me, that was the girl that played on what is now the Symmetra Tour. And I, I think part of it also is that you have some success. I mean, it doesn't work out sure. well if you mess them up. So you, um, <laughs> you, if you, if you, if you, if you get that opportunity and you mess them up, it's, uh, it's not going to go so well. So, not good for business. <laughs> no, not good for business. That's what I tell people. Yeah, it's not good for business to make them worse. So that led from, her name was Melinda Daniels Price. And she was, uh, at the time a fiance and then eventually a wife of a friend of mine, Rick Price. And then I started working for Rick Price, who was a person that I played with at the same time. And, and then that led to other people and thankfully some other success. And then it evolved into what I was to call now being a tour coach. Like that that job, I'm in my early fifties and, and that being a tour coach was not really a thing thirty right. years ago. I mean, you no. know, like that wasn't a job. You you didn't 
you, you, you didn't aspire for that. Like that. And so in that 30-year time period or 25-year time period, the world of high-level golf has changed, and the idea that there are coaches around doing that, and I am I consider myself lucky that I did the job during that evolution. I, I agree. Yeah, in my early years, I worked for a, a great teacher, great coach, Hank Johnson. You know, and uh, it was a PGA yeah. Teacher of the Year and all. And Hank, it was unbelievable foundation that shaped who I am. But you know, he taught lots of great players, but he didn't go travel out on tour like that wasn't a thing. Right, like he had times those people on off weeks stopped by the club that he worked at. You know, it wasn't like yeah, you made a yeah. bunch of trips out there. It's interesting how that's changed. And and uh, when did you start seeing that change where everybody started going out? I mean, I, and the other thing I would say to that, and and I want your thoughts on this. Like when I get asked more and more, like from people, which is is cool to me that people reach out and ask my advice now because I never really think of myself as somebody they'd be asking for advice, but. Like, well, how do you become a guy that coaches tour players? Like, to me, I never necessarily set out to do that. I just set out to become a, as good a teacher as I can. And then it kind of happens because you keep teaching people and keep getting people better. I don't know that that's like you set out to just teach tour players. No, I don't think you do either. I think that people maybe try to formulate that goal in their mind. And, and yeah. that wasn't, uh, that wasn't, as I said, a goal of mine because it wasn't, it wasn't a job. It wasn't like you couldn't even think to wrap your head around it. And so the question you asked was, when did that change? I would say that that probably changed in, uh, you know, I've had a tour credential since 2003. So <laughs> 20 years, it's kind of shocking to think about it when I say it out loud. But I like, so I would say, you know, around 2008, 2009, 2010, when that started to change. And yeah. I... I, you know, this is the other statement that I make. You know, in a, in a relatively short amount of time, you you would you could say now that you're a tour coach, and everybody nods and goes, "Oh yes, we get that you do that." And but when I first went out there, people would look at you funny, like or look at the player, like, "What what is? Why do you have this guy? And you know, are you right. are you that broken that you need your own coach?" You know, and in a, in a in a really short amount of time, that's all changed. That 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 whole idea of that there's a team environment and that there's and, – and I have had a bunch of experience in the world of tennis through Daniel Berger and his father and a relationship that I have had with Yvonne Lendl. And so in my mind, the some of that was a copy on what was happening in the tennis world. You know, okay. Two individual sports and, like, why do players have a group of people around them to – help them perform at the highest level. And then it, it, it kind of evolved that way. And, and, and also to be upfront too, it's the money. Like there's enough money now sure. that people can even think of having a, a group around them because it's uh, not really that long ago that the idea that people could pay for all that is, was, was just not even in their head. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a, yeah, I actually think that's a big part of it. I think that, uh, you know, the money has gotten so big out there. And you can argue whether that's great or not, but like, I think that that's, you know, I, I think that that's a big part of the ability because they're playing for so much. I mean, I think they've got the ability to bring people on the road with them. And then I also think too, the way the schedule has evolved where now they basically play year round, right? I mean, I mean, the, yeah. you know, obviously the top 20, 30 players, 50 players in the world could take a little more time off than a lot of the young folks we're saying, man, they're playing all year that, 
like it isn't where they have an off season that they can come work with you for a week or two in the off season. So, uh, and they don't have as many off weeks. So if you don't go travel to see them, you don't get to work with, they don't get to work as much. Sure. And I think that across the board, there's much more of a mentality that is fed down even into junior golf where people are going to leave no stone unturned. They're going to do right. everything that they can. And I don't believe in my lifetime or even in the time that I'm coaching that that was the philosophy. There were people that were doing that, and you learned about that later. That was certainly Tiger's philosophy or Bernhard Langer's philosophy. And there would be other people that I'm not necessarily like referencing now that would, would have taken every step possible to achieve the highest level they can. And nowadays, that's almost a, a given. Like, it's no longer, uh, I mean, just about everybody is following this formula now. Yeah, yeah, there's very few, very few. And even the people that you would say are older school still have some people around them, I think, nowadays, right? I mean, they just have less. I mean, there's very few people that just do it all by themselves. So let's, I'm always fascinated by how a teacher who's achieved a lot and has tremendous success like yourself, how has your teaching evolved or changed, if all at all, over the last, you know, like you said, you've had tour credential for 18 years. So how has your teaching and coaching evolved over that period of time and changed, if at all? Well, I would hope that my communication has improved. I think that what happens is that you stand on firmer ground so that you can choose your words carefully and choose the timing of that delivery better. Mm -hmm. I also think that with that amount of experience, I've seen a number of swing styles come and go or be part of golf. And you, I tend to not look at so much of a, a requirement. And I suppose that that's probably maybe what I'm known for because I've had a number of clients that have had idiosyncratic swings, swings that right. are what you wouldn't be. And so my, style has not always been one of, all right, it looks like this, let's make it look like that. Uh, it's more, yeah. I would say, performance-based. Like, all right, what are these person's expectations of, of ball control? Are they able to be able to produce this predictably? And, and also, in that time period, technology has changed a lot. So mm-hmm. radar and force plates and 3D motion capture and all of that input is going to be there in some way to the player. And so I think that when you're involved in this kind of role, you it's your job to be able to help that person decipher it and figure out whether this is applicable or not. Uh, is this something that's really going to help you? So that's something that has shaped, I think, how I teach. Like, um, all right, does this make sense from a, from a practical application? And how valuable is it to... To look how I will just use say force plate data. Okay, so is it does mm-hmm. this apply to this person, and is it going to make them better, or is it going to open this whole can of worms that we can't get the worms back in the can? That's so true, and I've made that mistake before, Jeff. You like sometimes giving into a player too that thinks that they've got to have it, you know. And one of the things I hope I'm getting better at that I, as I look as I've gotten older is you mentioned standing your ground. Like I, when I first started coaching really good players. Like, I think I was scared to stand my ground because I felt like maybe I needed them more than they needed me. Have you ever been there? 
Yes, of course. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, we're all we're all in a situation why why we're just about being paid. It doesn't matter. It's not just right. this job. It's any job. It's a, it's a doctor. I mean, you're you're just you're justifying why you're being paid. And if you come up with something really big, then it seems like well, I should be paying for that information. It's really valuable, so it must be. Well, I really hope that I can get to a place in my mind with somebody that it's okay to say nothing. Everything is fine. Yeah. You're good. You're maybe freaking out now because of some recent performance. We know everything is fine. And that takes a certain level of confidence to get to that place. A hundred percent. I was recently fired by, you know, maybe my best player. Like, I didn't think there was anything wrong, right? You know, and and I think that, like, if you coach tour players long enough, you're going to have times that they're swinging great and they play bad. Yeah. You know, I mean, oh, we've yeah. all had, I mean, how many times have you stood on the range and the guy strikes it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and you leave and you think there's no way this guy could play bad. And I mean, they shoot four over or something in the first round and they miss the cut by a mile. It's crazy. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it is. It's just, yeah, the, the well, you separate preparation and you do your best to prepare. And then there are, I think it, it, it allows you and to, for me, it helps me to reflect on, okay, what do I have control over and what don't I have control over? And you do a good job at, first of all, uh, identifying those things and then being able to grab a hold of them and, not, all right, I have control over these things. I don't have control over these other variables. And, and like, I've been at British Opens where all of a sudden the weather's hideous. I mean, the, the preparation went yeah. fantastic. They got an afternoon drawing. It's blowing 30 miles an hour and it's raining sideways. I mean, there are some certain things there that they're not going to be able to control, and like three people make the cut from their wave. And, right, right. And, or like managing expectations. Someone's expectations, so they prep really well. You know, the, the as you said, the practice rounds have gone great, and then their expectations go through the roof, and then they play crap. All right, so, but it is, it's this juggling match of these pieces for the player and the person that's trying to help them like, all right, have we got the right pieces in the air? Are we missing anything? And if we're not, then we're really doing all that we can. And I, I think that if you – inevitably, you're still going to get people that want a different answer. And mm-hmm. then, it's, it's, then it's not going to work. There's nothing you can do. I mean, it is, I mean, it is inevitable that relationships end. I mean, it, 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 For sure. I, I, I don't think that it's realistic that you're going to – walk off into the sunset hand in hand with your players for the rest of your life. Like it's, it's a volatile environment and it's just what happens. No, a hundred percent. And I think as you get older, you, you, re- I always tell folks, they ask me a, a, a teacher that's teaching a young tour player now asked me like, you know, I guess he had gone through this about like, how do you handle getting fired? And I, you know, and what did you do? And I said, like, you know, I, I think I've learned like, before I I would let it make myself think I was terrible, right? Like there had to be something wrong with me. But then I mean, after you go through it a few times, you realize that it's part of the business and that it's going to happen. And, you know, sometimes it helps me refocus on things that I get back to doing things that I'm good at or that I enjoy, because I think it's easy to get caught up sometimes spending a whole lot of time on something that maybe isn't worth all of your effort. Yeah. When I started becoming a little bit more successful and traveling more, and, and I, at one mm-hmm. time I had six PGA Tour players, and I, I always thought in my mind that the epitome of the job was to have, if I could just get to the place where I had four stable PGA Tour players, yeah. that would be the, the ideal situation. Well, the flaw in that is the stable word. There is no stability. <laughs> it is, the whole thing 
is unstable. It's unstable for the player. It's unstable for the caddy. It's unstable for the coaches and the players around it. It's a volatile environment. So you can do your best to, and with the best intentions, like nobody goes out there trying to mess people up. You're, you're, no. You are, you're, you're bringing all of your, the information that you have to bear to help that individual. And if things don't work out, I hope that I can put my head on my pillow every night and think, okay, I did everything that I could to help this person, and if it didn't work out, then all right, that's beyond my control. Right. No, I, I agree. Uh, and I want to circle back to something else you talked about, too. You know, when I do these things, Jeff, heck, they're as much for me learning as they are for anybody. I would, I would you know, like to bring on people I'm interested in learning about. And, uh, you, you know, you talked about how, you know, I mean, you, you had swings with people that, that have idiosyncrasies and aren't just – and to me, one of the best compliments is always, like, if you look at all the people you teach and none of them swing alike, then you know the person – has a good understanding of how to help people. You know, to me, that's a real compliment when you have people that are very successful, but not every one of them swings alike. Well, uh, yeah, I, I appreciate that compliment as well. I think that there's more value in trying to determine what not to change than what figuring out what to change. I'm really kind of change averse, to be honest. I, I would right. rather meet somebody right at the very beginning and say, Let's assume that everything is fine. I know you're not playing well now, but let's just assume, starting right now, that everything is fine, and then we'll go from there, rather than assuming everything is crap and that it all needs to be – because, you know, that it, it, it's – change is hopefully positive, but it comes with always comes with side effects. I mean, and when you're dealing with people who are already pretty good and have had a golf evolution and they've got a bunch of – all the good shots and bad shots and all the feelings that have been associated with them – I mean, you're 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 taking on this relatively complicated puzzle, and it's not really great to dive in there and blow that puzzle up. I mean, that it, then it takes a lot more work putting it back together again. So, I'm may I guilty, and I I would be guilty as charged at going slowly or uh, like, all right, I'm not gonna we're not gonna rush into this because. Now, probably one of the best coaching jobs that I ever did was with Carl Peterson, who never had a swing coach in his life before, and that scared the heck out of me because the only voice he'd ever had, in it, yeah, the only voice he'd ever had in his head was his own. So now I come huh. along and I got some ideas. I mean, that that is that's some dangerous water right there. I mean, a lot can go wrong with that. So right, no, no, for sure. Yeah. Where right. where did so, you start with a player like that? Where where did you start? Well, I went and looked at a lot of uh, film from when Carl was playing younger and when he was in Europe. And the other more challenging thing is that body, his body had changed. So Carl would uh -huh. openly suggest or openly say that he had some extra pounds on him around the middle <laughs> and uh, uh, managing that. And then, you know, there's the deep story that's sort of, well, well maybe less known now, is that Carl was very motivated one winter, not when I was working with him, to lose that weight. And he, he, being a type A motivated individual, lost it all and then played terribly because uh, his balance was thrown off and, and his ability to be able to manage his body. And then he gained it all back again. So he... Starting out with him was like doing a bunch of due diligence and figuring out, okay, how had this person moved before? How when how they had played well? And then proceeding really cautiously to try to figure out what was the best way to give him information. And in Carl's case, it all boiled down to something really simple. I mean, he hit, I put him in a situation with where it was a, like a downhill side hill lie because I knew he needed to adjust to that. And I, I basically asked him, okay, go and figure that out. 
figure out this situation. Now, I knew that it was going to challenge him to be able to move properly to have that happen, and I hopefully prepared him to say, hey, you know, this is going to be tricky. It's basically like me finding the sore spot on your golf swing and poking it. But I relied on the fact that, okay, this, this guy's evolved this far. He's probably going to evolve and adapt to this other environment. So most of it was just that environmental and situational learning to get him, like, sort of nudge him in this direction and, and then also have ownership of it, that it wasn't mm-hmm. me telling him to do it. He figured it out. Yeah, I so, think that's the best way. Yeah, I try very hard to have that happen. And so it would end up being, you know, what seemed pretty simple, which is really the whole, was the whole goal in the first place. That's awesome. That's a great story. Great story. And it's almost like sometimes you trick them into learning it and doing it, you know, like but yeah. the way you created created that scenario, not in a not in a mean hearted way, but like you you trick them into doing it and let them figure it out. And then when they do that, they, you know, they own it and they're, you know, they understand it better. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, thanks. And and it also came with, you know, we measured, I measured them in 3D, so I had all of the data to go with it. And I, But he, I never looked at that. I mean, I didn't share that with him and said, hey, you know, this is what your wrist angles are doing. And because I knew that he'd never thought of that before. That was, that mm-hmm. was never something that he, like Carl was so much about ball flight. So everything that he did was about to make the ball do this. So I thought, all right, if I put him in this situation and ask him to produce this ball flight, It'll probably nudge him in this direction. Now, it's still an educated guess, just like medicine yep. is an educated guess. You know, sometimes, you know, doctors get a little offended by when you say that. But, I mean, that's the reality. It's an educated guess. Right. You know, you're, you're, you're taking the information, you're learning as much as you can, and then you're offering this, hopefully, you know, sound advice, and then you see how it plays out. And that's a great analogy. So, speaking of science, obviously, you've got a lot of it. Right. I mean, you got access to it. How much do you use in it day to day? Because I get lots of teachers that listen to this and they ask, how much do you use? And then how much of it do you share? You mentioned like with Carl, where, you know, you didn't share with him. How much of it do you share with the, the student or the player? I'm very reluctant to share initially, and I try not, I'm not doing it as a be secretive. I just tell more of the can of worms thing. Like, all right, you know, you don't, once you say something, and if you've developed trust with somebody, you can't take it back. I mean, they're going to, they're going to take it in. Mm -hmm. I use the technology or the diagnostic tools as that. We're going to have a diagnostic period. We're going to measure this. We're going to get an idea of what's going on. And then, I use TrackMan on a regular basis because I, I think that it's valuable that, you know, certainly as a distance control trainer or if someone is working on some movement that relates to path that we're going to – I don't have all the numbers up. I just have, okay. like, one number. Like, uh, like I was with somebody yesterday, and they, there was a, a fairly complicated backstory on how they were moving, but it all led to them having an in-down path, a draw path, so the right call for the path being positive. So I just had that one number up, like, hey, let's make this thing positive. And then I'm watching to make sure that they're accomplishing that the right way, and they're not just hand-whipping it in doubt to make it go to make the number. Because anybody who's any good can manipulate TrackMan numbers. I mean, you, you, they can make the numbers come out. Like, I Correct. think your job is to make sure, okay, how is this person really producing this? Like, are they mm-hmm. doing this sequentially? Are they doing it through movement? So. I would say that technology is a big part of my life because I don't think it's going away. Like it's going to be here. No. It's, it's going to, and it's going to continue to evolve. So I think it's the responsibility of a high level coach to have a relatively good understanding of it. But the real element is how are you going to deliver it to the person? Like you don't, not everybody needs to see the MRI or figure out how the MRI machine works. 
They just need to know whether they have a broken arm or not. Or a, or a foreign ligament. Yeah. <laughs> Those are great. Now, yeah. I use the MRI analogy all the time with forceps. So, yeah, it shows us what's going in, but you don't need to know everything, right? Yeah, and if it's really bad, like, you don't need to have an X-ray machine if you've got a broken arm and you can see a bone sticking out of the arm. I mean, it's bad. <laughs> you know you got a broken arm. Yeah, but yeah. if it's a little more subtle, then the technology is a little bit more helpful. But for big stuff, then uh, – Probably, like, people are, like, disappointed. Like, they know that I have this relationship with technology. They come in and they go, they, they kind of look at me like, you know, when's the, when's the, and I'm like, no, you got a bone sticking out of your arm. We don't need to know that your arm's broken. We, we, right. we can figure that out just right here. We don't need to do all this other stuff. Yeah, I mean, you got a wide open club face. Your grip's not very good. <laughs> yeah, we don't need yes. we don't need to put you on a force plate to tell us. <laughs> no, <that. laughs> no, right? right? Yeah, uh, I don't need to measure you on 3D. I can see your club face is, and your everything is revolving around that. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah. That's awesome, Jeff. This has been fun, fun for me. Awesome stuff. Great insight for everybody out there, man. You're doing so much great stuff. I enjoy watching your stuff on Instagram and the videos that you've been putting up recently and uh, appreciate everything you do for us teachers. And uh, always great to see you when we're out at tour events and hopefully we get to catch up soon. Yeah, I'd love to do dinner sometime and I appreciate it. Thank you for the compliments. And I, uh, I'm a big fan of your show. So thank you. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Tour Coach. I want to take a minute and thank Cordy Walker and Golf Science Lab, as well as my sponsors, Shrikshan, Buick, Bushnell, and Vineyard Vines for helping make all of this possible and helping me share my insights with you. If you like what you've heard, why don't you check out more on the Dew Sweepers channel on YouTube, as well as the Dew Sweeper on Instagram, or go to dewsweepersgolf.com to find out more about my teaching, my travels, and where you can find out more about me.